So I'm a dream chaser. So chase dreams, right? Chase dreams slash set goals. <laughs> Don't take no for an answer. Have a realistic plan. You should be able to look at your plan three or four different ways and say to yourself, yeah, I see how that could work out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Goals Do Come True with me, Doug Bennett. And today, I am absolutely honoured to have Jeff Deskovic on board. Now, there's nothing I can say about his story. You need to hear it from him directly. So, Jeff, background, Goals Do Come True is the podcast. Slide it in if you can, obviously, but it's over to you. You've got an amazing story, and uh, I think, you know, my, my listeners need to hear it. Absolutely. 100% goals do come true. And that theme is going to pop up several times in the course of the podcast. And I'm going to share like a how-to, which is generic, which everybody can apply to their own life. And I have a special formula that I applied to myself in terms of making a difference in the world that, again, will go beyond my story. And I, I hope that at least some people will take and apply to themselves. So I'm going to do this in the reverse. My initial goal, which I set out, was that I would get free from being wrongfully imprisoned. That's right. You heard it right. I was imprisoned for 16 years. I got arrested when I was 16. I was wrongfully convicted of a murder and rape, which I did not commit, despite a negative DNA test result. Uh, wrongful conviction was caused by a coerced false confession, prosecutorial misconduct, brought by the medical examiner, terrible public defender. I lost seven appeals. I got turned down for parole. Ultimately, I was exonerated by further DNA testing that I not only proved my innocence, but also identified the actual perpetrator. So that was the main goal. I pushed across a secondary goal, uh, which we'll get into later on in the interview, is uh, I not only became uh, an advocate. Uh, with a nonprofit organization called the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice, which has been able to free 10 other wrongfully convicted people and help pass three laws aimed at preventing wrongful conviction. But the uh, foundation joined broader coalition called Could Happen to You. We passed four additional laws, and I eventually became an attorney as well. So that's what you have up. I've teed it up for everybody, and we'll unpack it all as the interview flows through. But fasten your seatbelt. This is going to be a wild but inspirational one. And as I said, uh, I pride myself on being able to give interviews, not just to share my story, which is important. It illuminates the issue and increases the profile of the organization. But most importantly, I want to, I'm going to leave you with some tools that you being the listeners that you can apply to yourselves. You see, how could I have introduced that? What an amazing story. Jeff, share, share with us your tips, your, your, your new ideas, your sequence that you use for goal setting i think it's something everybody you know how many years 16 years, 16 years. seven appeals this is 16 years in prison yes in the states in new york state yes which is that's state not in the funny states. that's really really uh, not good not. fun is it 
No, not at all. And then it was from age 17 to 32. So my formative years, and I had been charged as an adult and therefore sentenced as an adult and therefore sent to an adult maximum security prison. Crazy stuff. There's some unpicking to be done there. Jeff, it's all yours, mate. It's all yours. All right. So let me start out, give like a short overview of the case itself, and then we'll translate from there. We'll transition rather into the, you know, accomplishing goals and all the tips and everything. So the year was 1990. The location was Peekskill, which was uh, a suburb, a city within Westchester County, New York. So think middle class, think ethnically diverse. There was a murder and rape of a classmate who was in two of my classes, a freshman, one as a sophomore. I knew her name. She knew mine. That was really the extent of it. Uh, We were not even really on a high buy basis. And there hadn't been a murder there in maybe 20 years. So it created a big atmosphere of fear and rumor and paranoia and public pressure on the police to solve the crime. I got on the police radar because while after school, I was kind of the life of the party, one of the main two kids that, you know, whatever I would suggest and to the, to the kids in the apartment complex and nearby areas that we would do, whether it's riding bikes or play Monopoly or play basketball or swim or any number of regular, you know, teenage things to do. That was not my position in life in high school where everybody was uh, a little older than me because I I had skipped a grade early on. And so they were into really drinking beers and parties and chasing girls. And I wasn't, that wasn't what I was into. And so I therefore was on the fringes of the society in the high school. And so when the police spoke to many of the students from the high school, some of them told the police they might want to speak to me because I was quiet and to myself. And so that put me on the police radar. Uh, another factor that they put me on their radar is they thought that it was suspicious that I was uh, overly upset at, at the victim having been murdered. I mean, I was a sensitive teenager. This was my first brush with death. And for me to be really upset was for over the death of this uh, almost stranger was suspicious to the police. Although in the broader context, it affected it, it, many people in the city to the point that mental health counseling uh, free was offered for uh, anybody. Then they did a psychological profile. They got one from the the Manhattan Police Department, which is more experienced in homicides. And I and it purported to have the psychological characteristics of the actual perpetrator. And I had the misfortune of matching that. A couple of other background things to know. So I came from a single parent household. My father was never involved in my life in any aspect. And so that intersected with the good cop, bad cop routine where one officer is more aggressive, the other pretends to be your friend. I began to look up to the officer pretending to be my friend as a father figure. And another factor is that before I was a teenager, the career I fantasized about having when I grew up was actually to be a cop. And so that intersected also the good cop, bad cop routine, but also that half the time the police would speak to me over six weeks, half the time they speak to me, it would be like if I'm a suspect and when they would push too hard and I would become frightened to want to get away from them, they would switch it up. And Jeff is this junior detective helper theme was uh, what they what they pushed. So that along with my age being 16 was how they pulled the wool over my eyes. So eventually they got me to agree to take a lie detector test. So the next day, instead of going to high school, I went to the police station for the test. My mother and grandmother thought I was in school, so they didn't call around looking for me. They drove me 40 minutes away by a car to a uh, town of Brewster, which was in another county. That meant I couldn't leave on my own. I was dependent upon the police. I didn't have an attorney present. They didn't give me anything to eat. They gave me a brochure that explained the polygraph, but it had a lot of big words in it that I didn't understand. 
But then I figured, well, I'm there to help the police. So what does it matter? Let's just get on with it. The polygraphist himself, Daniel Stevens, was a Putnam County Sheriff's investigator, and he was dressed like a civilian. So he never identified himself as a cop. He never read me my rights. They put me in a small room, gave me countless cups of coffee, and then he attached me to the polygraph and he, he launched into his third degree tactic. So he raised his voice at me. He, he uh, invaded my personal space. He kept asking me the same questions over and over again. And he kept that up for six and a half to seven hours. Towards the end, he made a statement. He said, what do you mean you didn't do it? You just told me through the test result that you did. We just want you to verbally confirm it. That really shot my fear through the roof. And at that point, the cop who had been pretending to be my friend, he came in the room and told me that the other officers were going to harm me, but that he'd been holding them off, but couldn't do so indefinitely, that I had to help myself. Then he added, look, just tell them what they want to hear. They'll stop what they're doing. You can go home afterwards. You're not going to be arrested. Being young, naive, frightened, 16 years old, not thinking long-term, just being concerned with my safety in the moment. I was I was in fear of my life. The fact that I didn't know where I was and no one else knew where I was either loomed very large. I was overwhelmed emotionally and psychologically. It was a possibility of harm, the false promise he threw. And I made a, made a decision to make up a story based on the information he had given me in the course of the interrogation that day and in the uh, six weeks run up to it. By the time everything was said and done, uh, I, had co- I had collapsed on the floor in a fetal position, crying uncontrollably. Obviously, I was arrested. DNA test result came in from the FBI lab before the trial showed that semen and the victim didn't match me. But then the prosecutor got the medical examiner to commit fraud. And he falsely claimed that the, he forgot to document medical evidence that he said showed the victim had been promiscuous. So in order to wrongfully convict me, they were willing to trash her reputation. Her family was not coming to court, so they didn't know what was being said about her in court. They named another youth by name they claimed had slept with her, but they never performed the DNA test result in order to prove that. He didn't even call him as a witness. Uh, At the same time, the public defender I had essentially did not defend me. He didn't call my alibi as a witness. He never tried to discredit the medical examiner. He never explained to the jury significance of DNA not matching me. He never used that to argue that it proved the confession was coerced or false. When it came to the confession, it wasn't videotaped or audio taped. There was no signed confession. So when the cops came to court, they left the threat and false promise, which were illegal to do. They left that out of their story. So really, they committed another crime on top of that, the perjury. And my lawyer uh, did, would not allow me to testify. Uh, sometimes he argued to the jury the confession never happened. At other times, he argued it happened, but it was forced. At still other times, he was arguing that it It happened, but it was false. So by taking this scattershot approach, he had to have blown his own. He must have been standing there looking at somebody who was willing to say anything. And the end result of everything was I was wrongfully convicted. I was given a a, a 15 to life sentence. And as I mentioned, I was sent to a maximum security prison where, you know, I, I lost seven appeals. I did 15 years. I went to the parole board. I got turned down for parole because I maintained my innocence and rather than express a remorse and take responsibility. Ultimately, I was cleared through further DNA testing through the DNA data bank, which not only reaffirmed my innocence, but identified the actual perpetrator whose DNA was in the data bank because left free while I was doing time for his crime. He killed a second victim 
who was a school teacher and had two children. So on September 22nd, 2006, my charges, my conviction was overturned and I was released. I went back to court November 2nd, 2006, at which point all the charges against me were dismissed on actual innocence grounds. And he was actually arrested and pled um, guilty and was sentenced for the crime. Gobsmacked, which is like speechless as a phrase. Mm. What a story to be. Well, you were, you, you know, you were seriously mentally abused by the police officers there, really. Yeah, 100% for sure. Okay. It was a long time ago. What it was, done? it was 14 years ago. Yes. What have you done since? This, yes, is, so, this is the exciting stuff. I mean, that, tragic. Yes, I know. But picking yourself up. Yes. Be yes, serious, of dusting yourself off and getting going again. Tell us the yes. second, second half of the story. Absolutely. That is my favorite part as well. Uh, so I gave an off-the-cuff presentation to the news media at the press conference. I, I, I spoke for like two, two and a half hours. Anything, Everything I'd always wanted to say, could never get anyone to hear me say, all came out one after another. And I realized at that moment, you know, I could be part of the innocence movement without necessarily being a lawyer. So uh, I wanted to make a difference. My first week, I was angry. But then I realized, look, this is destroying me. I've lost so much already. Why do I want to, in effect, lose the rest of my life? Uh, you know, I want to enjoy my life as much as I can. I can't do that if I'm angry or bitter. It's not like if I am angry or bitter that I'm going to be negatively impacting the people involved. So I let that go. And I decided that, you know, in wanting to make a difference, I became an individual advocate. So I started doing presentations around the country. Uh, I became a columnist for a weekly paper. I did that for five years. I decided I would trade privacy for awareness. Then I started meeting regularly with elected officials. I was always frustrated as a prisoner when someone would get exonerated, they get their initial five minutes of fame, and then they wouldn't speak anything at all about wrongful conviction. Then they just disappear. So when I unexpectedly found myself free and I said, you know, you are critical of other people. Now you're free. Let, why don't you show them how it's done? All right. Why don't, why don't, let's see you do better. So hence becoming doing that advocacy work. And after about five years, I got some financial compensation and I wanted to continue the advocacy work, but go to the next level. So I started the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice, whose goal is to free people in the same position that I was once in, because uh, I couldn't forget about the men and women I metaphorically left behind and to prevent what happened to me from happening to others. So since then, which was 2011, we've been able to free 10 people. We've been able to help pass three laws, so videotaping interrogations, identification reform, DNA database expansion. Uh, there is a broader national coalition group called It Could Happen to You, which I'm an advisory board member of and which my foundation is part of, and we help pass some additional laws, four of them, oversight for prosecutors, a tweak of that, better uh, sharing of information between the defense and prosecution automatic early on in, in the process, mm -hmm. and then uh, automatic expungement of uh, records. So we have 10 cases now. We're working on campaigns and policy-wise, New York, Pennsylvania, and, and, uh, and California. We are in, in New York. We're trying to get rid of the exceptions. When the law was passed uh, to mandate videotaping interrogations, uh, they passed with exceptions. So we're trying to get rid of those. We want to have the independent oversight of prosecutors in Pennsylvania. PA is one of 14 states that does not have compensation. 
So we're working on that uh, in California. We again, the oversight for prosecutors, and we think there's a chance to get rid of the death penalty because of the obvious risk of executing somebody innocent, as well as a host of other arguments. But the main part in all of that is, you know, becoming an advocate, uh, reaching back for people in the same position I was in, working on the preventative side. But at some point, it became not enough for me to sit in the front row of the courtroom. I wanted to be able to represent some of the clients. I wanted to make some of the arguments, hence making a foray into uh, law school and becoming an attorney. So let me give some, let me give some tips. Let me give, let me, let me give a framework. And I applied that to myself while I was in prison to get out. And then also in becoming a lawyer, because the first time I tried to get in a law school, uh, I didn't get it. So I had to try it a second time, seven years later. And, and even overcoming the struggle after exoneration. I mean, briefly, I was released with nothing. So I uh, lacked stability of housing. I was always passed over for gainful employment, uh, psychological after effects, PTSD, panic attacks, anxiety, processing things at a slower speed, being frozen in time. Technology had passed me by. GPS, internet, cell phones hadn't been created. Culture was different. Cities and towns looked different. So it felt like I was in a parallel world or universe. Yeah. yeah. Uh, very, very lonely as well. So all those were obstacles I had to overcome in that five years. And then I had to try to struggle to get into law school and doing law school three years and the, the 10 to 14 hour days of studying, 10 to 14 hours a day studying once you graduate law school to pass the bar. So all of these are what I did and, and, and testing out these principles I'm going to share now. That, that's the tie-in. So number one, so I'm a dream chaser. So chase dreams. Right, chase dreams slash set goals. Don't take no for an answer. Have a realistic plan. You should be able to look at your plan three or four different ways and say to yourself, "Yeah, I see how that could work out." Next thing, remember the the plan. The goal is the goal. The plan's not the goal. So you have to be flexible enough. So along the way, while you're executing your plan, if a different door opens or you get one obstacle or another, and you have to go around the mountain that that pass rather than go straight. Be flexible enough to do that. Work. There are no reasons why you can't do something. There might be reasons why it's more difficult. You know, I was competing in law school against people half my age and less that went to Ivy League schools while advocating, you know, full time as well. So I, 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 you know, so there might, it was harder for me, harder for me, but that, that just meant it was harder, not impossible. Don't be afraid to work hard. Okay, if you want something bad enough and you work hard enough, you leave it all out to coin use a sports metaphor, leave it all out on the field. And uh, no matter what, don't give up. And whenever at any of those three junctures we're talking about in prison, five years difficulty without compensation and law school related endeavors, whenever I reached the point that I couldn't go on anymore and I reached that point more than a few times, I said to myself, you know, Maybe this is the key moment right here, right now. Maybe I'm about to have a breakthrough, but because I quit, it's not going to happen. So you know what? I'm going to, even though I can't go on anymore, I'm going to do it anyway, just to see what happens on the other end. And so I told myself that, and I applied that. I applied that to myself, and I was able to overcome. Simple steps, but they take resilience. They take commitment. They take hard work. But you just keep going and don't give in. 
very important. Don't give in. And break things into manageable chunks too. If it's too big to, if you can't eat the whole elephant at once. Do it one <laughs> just, chunk just at a time. <laughs> one, one chunk at a time. Look, let's just get you through this one part. Okay, then we'll, we'll figure everything else out after. Let's just get you to this one part. And a key in that is you'll feel better. You'll feel different when you see some forward progress that will help your morale and, and, and mental so much. And I, I know for sure that the lessons in my journey in becoming an advocate and a you know, recognized expert in justice reform, wrongful conviction, all the things I've done, I know that that applies to far more than people wrongfully imprisoned. So I know that that would apply, for example, someone who's a victim of domestic abuse. Uh, it would apply to somebody who's been sexually assaulted, somebody homeless, somebody that has had some sort of debilitating illness. So you're going to apply the principles I've shared. You're going to not give up. You're going to make it through the other side. You will make it. And then once you do, you're going to reach back, reach back and help somebody else that's in that same position. And then do some work on the preventative side as well. It's going to be healing for you. It's going to be cathartic. It's going to make the world a better place. You'll take some solace in your suffering that you left the place a little bit better than you found it. So all of those, all of those, and it's all those, and you're going to make a difference in someone's life. And that really is that means so much. That creates a lot of a lot of meaning. And you know, most people. You know, we, we need to make our suffering count for something, and we can in that way. But the road is hard, it's long, but it's very doable. You face fears and you get outside your comfort zone, but you practice and you keep going over, and you keep you don't quit no matter what. But you can you can do it. Jeff, that's like really, really cool stuff. It's it's good advice. It's good, solid advice based on trying circumstances, incredible experiences. It's brilliant. I normally have other questions that I ask, but, you know, that sort of encompassed everything that I, you know, I, I look for in a guest. And, you know, you, you, you've, you've given so much guidance there. But I'm going to ask you for one thing more. I'm going to ask you for a nugget of something, something that we haven't touched on, right? It's goals-based that everybody in the world needs to know. Come on, give me something. You, you've got as long as you need to think about it, but I, I reckon you'll come up with something. Whatever adversity you've experienced or are currently experiencing or have experienced, there is definitely somebody else out there that's been through it before. So I think that when you learn about other people, like I found it inspirational. I was able to keep going when I read about other stories of people who had been exonerated. So there's going to be success stories of people who have encountered the very thing that you're going through now. I would encourage you to seek those things out. You know, we're in the information age, so information is accessible, Google, et cetera, and use that as inspiration. So there's, there's that. And another thing is this, is no matter what our adverse circumstances are, there's going to be somebody who had it even worse than you. So for me, as terrible as 16 years was, what if I was in a literal slave labor camp and they were like beating me? What if I was a paraplegic 
what if I, God forbid, had caught AIDS or cancer? What if I had been told I've got 30 days to live? So whatever extreme situation we're in, as horrendous as it is, if we think about people that have been in worse positions, it can reframe the issue. It can make it a little bit more manageable. It can give you a little bit more strength and energy to keep going. That's all we need is just a little bit of space and just remain calm, try to have a plan, be organized. Things will seem less chaotic if you you know, go about things in a systematic, manageable way. So maybe I've given you three things there rather than one. I really don't mind about that. The listeners aren't going to mind about that either. That's perfect. Now, we're going to make sure that your stuff, your information, and people can reach out and connect and support your foundation if they so desire. It's, you know, you've helped 10 people. You need to help as many more as possible. So we'll make sure that that information is there. I've noticed that Amazon, if you uh, use Smile Amazon, you can make your donations without affecting your lifestyle. But, you know, just a little bit of something. If, if, if anybody wants to chip in and help, that would be great. The Amazon Prime. So if you register the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation on Amazon Prime, whatever you make a purchase, they will, Amazon will donate a small portion to us without it increasing your bill. We do have the Patreon page. So my ultimate goal is to, is to have a chapter in my organization, not just in each state, but in each country, because I really view wrongful conviction as a worldwide issue. And countries where we are not hearing about wrongful conviction, it's not that they're not happening. It's simply that uh, no one is working on it. We're working on uh, freeing people. So what if 25,000 people could afford $3 or $5 a month on a recurring basis? We would be able to free more innocent people. We could expand our policy work, uh, as you mentioned. I do I do speaking engagements. It's not just national, international as well. So if there's any place that might uh, be interested in that, please connect me to them. And look, keep up with me. Uh, I'm on Facebook. I have the public figure page, Instagram as well. The foundation's website, www.deskovic.org. There's an email form there. You can email me through that as well. And Listen, appreciate the small things. I love the fresh air. I like feeling the sunlight on my face. I I appreciate freedom of movement. Look, just the ability to control the electricity in my house. So, you know, these are small things. Uh, And if you get a chance, do. I love love experiencing the world. So I, I do that. I like new experiences. I like trying new things. If you get a chance to go somewhere unusual or try something, do something, things you have no interest in, just do it just once. I like sampling new food. I like going to new places. So even if you got to walk, if you got to take a bus ride, it doesn't have to be a plane ride around the world. Do that if you can, but if you can't, do whatever's within your ability. But in that way, experience experience the, the world. And you know, I, I do that, and I find that it brings a lot of uh, it brings a lot of joy to me. I, I like experiencing the world in that way. So I would like to share that as well. You are the gift that carries on giving, Jeff. Thank you very much for joining me today. It, I, I mean, we spoke an hour ago, and and here you are. And I think it's all you know. It's the universe sorting things out. This is a, an amazing message. It needs to be out there. Thank you very much indeed for taking some of your time out. We'll stay in touch. We'll make sure that everything, every way that anybody can get in touch with you is contained in the show notes. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening. Don't forget to review and subscribe on Apple, Google or Spotify. I'd love to hear about your goals. You can share them with me at dougbennett.co.uk. 